0: How does it feel to be the hunted, to be forever looking over your shoulder, like an owl with that type of neck? Welcome, friends, to the 100 More Literary Podcast. I am your host, Gio, and I am flying solo today, and I think we will be doing this solo for the foreseeable future. Unfortunately, it's just one of those things that's sort of happening right now in our lives. It's it's getting a little bit harder and harder to get a guest onto the program, especially when I don't live anywhere near any of my guests' hosts, and the pandemic makes it that much more difficult to uh, meet people in my general vicinity. Also, uh, a lot of the programs that we use to uh, make the remote connection so that we can record from various cities all at once are not always super reliable, so, for, so at least for the next couple of episodes probably it is likely that guest hosts will become a little bit more scarce going forward. That being said, I'm still pretty committed to the show, so you can expect some new content, and I do intend to continue with the weekly episodes, uh, also for the foreseeable future, let's say at least through the extent of the pandemic. And to that end, today we will be discussing The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. So The Most Dangerous Game is a story that I don't remember exactly how I became acquainted with. I remember vaguely being aware of it as a child, and I don't know how young I was because my first memory of it is actually... I, I don't remember what my first memory is of the story itself, but the earliest memory that I remember having of The Most Dangerous Game was watching the Ice-T movie, Surviving the Game, <laughs> when I was uh, really, really young, and I think it was on like Spanish-language television as well, so I was watching it in Spanish. So that 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 tells you how long it had already been out when I saw it. And I remember watching that film and thinking a film because it's, you know, such a prestige piece. but you know, well, I mean, regardless of the quality of of the movie, I, I really did enjoy it. But I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's like that' short story, the most dangerous game. So for me, it's it's this weird, thing that occupies this space of like when did i even become aware of this it's one of those it feels like there are certain things in life that you're just like always aware of like i don't remember learning about hitler for example (laughs) you know like it's just one of those things that we all just kind of take for granted that everybody knows even if nobody's ever really taught you it and so you know it when, when did I learn about Hitler? I don't know. It feels like it, I've always known who Hitler was. And I, I'm sure that that's an experience that a lot of people can relate to on some level. Maybe not with Hitler specifically. Maybe you have a really, well, let's, let's, not, go down, let's not go down the dark path of how exactly it is you learned who Hitler was. What are we doing? What are we doing? Uh, maybe we'll just keep it light and keep on talking about hunting humans for sport instead. <laughs> But uh, The Most Dangerous Game, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more adventure and And that's, that's kind of uh, something that we've discussed a little bit on some of the other shows. On Maybe not the more recent ones, but I know that it's been something that's been kind of on my mind, is to do something a little bit more pulpy, a little bit more old-timey. And that's kind of where Call of Cthulhu came from. But it didn't really scratch that itch. Because, yeah, it had some of that, like, Indiana Jones-style adventuring, uh, you know, going from continent to continent but because it's very specifically lovecraftian, you know, cosmic horror, it didn't really scratch that adventure itch. And this one did it a lot better. It really did scratch that itch for me. And at the same time, it's 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 a genuinely a classic, and when you read it, it's very interesting to sort of realize how much of it is just so bare bones i mean this is a concept that you know stephen king could easily turn into like 800 pages and and instead it's you know what 15 maybe it takes like it takes very little time to read and it's not it's just there's not a whole lot here as far as the page count or the word count goes as far as the literary content of the thing well, now there, there's there's quite a little bit more. And it's good to see that Richard Connell was able to get so much meaning out of so relatively few words. And I, I guess that's why it's upheld as a classic and why many of you listening may have read it in you know middle school or in early high school or something like that. Because it is an interesting story, quote unquote. You know, it, it's definitely a boy uh, book, you know, if you wanted to make it needlessly gendered. But, you know, it, it is very stereotypically like good old boys kind of thing. You know, it's about hunting and it's about hunting man and it's like really cool and gruff and adventure and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's very... <laughs> I mean, when was this written? Like 1932, I think, is when it was published. I can look that up right now. I don't have to guess at it. 1924. So it's very old-timey. It's definitely in that sort of... Not age of exploration. Well past the age of exploration. But, you know, this is this is the time when we're... As is happening in the book itself, when we're, you know, traveling to the Amazon for the adventure seeking, for the thrill seeking of the of the gentleman hunter. And so the story, such as it is, stars uh, Mr. Rainsfield, who is, said, a uh, gentleman hunter uh, and his friend Whitney, traveling to the Amazon rainforest because they are going to go hunting. And on the way, they come across an island, where the plot is waiting for them, waiting to ensnare them. (laughs) And they're having a really poignant conversation that is the setup for a lot of the message of the story. And we're going to go to our first quote to outline that particular little detail right now. It will be light enough in Rio... Promised Whitney. We should make it in a few days. I hope the Jaguar guns have come from Purdy's. We should have some good hunting up the Amazon. Great sport, hunting. The best sport in the world, agreed Rainsford. For the hunter, amended Whitney. Not for the Jaguar. Don't talk rot, Whitney, said Rainsford. You're a big game hunter, not a philosopher. Who cares how a Jaguar feels? Perhaps the jaguar does, observed Whitney. Bah! They have no understanding? Even so, I rather think they understand one thing. Fear. The fear of pain and the fear of death. Nonsense, (laughs) laughed Rainsford. This hot weather is making you soft, Whitney. Be a realist. The world is made up of two classes. The hunters and the huntees. Luckily, you and I are hunters. There's a little moment in that exchange, right at the end, where Rainsford says something to the effect of the world is made up of two classes, and when you pause right there, reading it today, this feels like a little bit of an allegory of, you know, societal classes and, and and how we could almost see hunting as allegory for capitalism and, and how, you know, the lower classes are the jaguars and the, and the upper classes are the hunters. <laughs> and it, it's so deliciously summed up in the world is made up of two classes. And there's a double hyphen in the edition that I have here. And and so it feels like there's almost that pause deliberately there. And you have to remember that this is in the 1920s. So we are actually in the midst of the rise of the Industrial Revolution leading to the monopolies and the vertical and horizontal integration of the Rockefellers and other uh, sort of big business magnates that created these monopolies. And so this this would have all been pretty fresh, you know. It's not even just from a modern perspective that we could look at this as the hunters and huntees in a capitalist society, even just looking at the time. In fact, if anything, it was probably even more so at the time, because all of that stuff would have been happening within the last twenty or thirty years, and and would have still been happening at that time with the progressive era of the 1890s onward that you know was kind of brought along in part by things like Theodore Roosevelt you know with his trust busting and anti-monopoly uh, reforms and all of that kind of thing being still fresh in the minds of many many people and you know really capturing their imaginations as well so there's a lot of parallels from that time to and I don't want I'm not trying to say necessarily that things are as bad around now I mean I live a pretty comfortable lifestyle, and I am not raking in the dough, let's say. <laughs> I have some pretty good prospects. I'm, I, I'm not going to sell myself too short, but I, I feel like my position and the relative comfort with which I live is not something that would have been entirely possible for me during that time. So, you know, just in, in pure... You know, what time would you live in? You always want to live in the future, right? It generally <laughs> life progresses or society progresses forward these days. You know, we're a far cry from the dark ages, although, you know, some would argue that it was probably better to live around eight years ago or so than it would be to live now. But generally, especially from now as compared to say 1920, <laughs> as opposed to living now in 2020, I would definitely rather live now in 2020. So I'm not trying to say that necessarily that things are as bad now as they were in the 1920s. But what I am saying is that the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time, the spirit of of reform, political reform, of progressivism is seeing a little bit of an uptick. Although you could certainly argue that really the spirit of the times now, as much as we may not like to admit it or as much as we fight against it, Is a a regressive era that we are in, where we are repealing uh, what what we there's one person repealing the the uh, literally every regulation that he can, whether or not it's a good or a bad thing. And you know, I don't want to make this too political, so I'm I'm gonna sort of teeter off the subject here a little bit. But I did want to kind of uh, reframe this particular narrative. ...in a modern context, because it's interesting that it can resonate in such a strong way today, even li- almost a hundred years after the fact. And that's what good art does. And so when you ask, you know, why is this, an, uh, why is this a classic? Why, do, why did I still have to read this in eighth grade? <laughs> well, there's your answer. I mean, there's always something interesting to, to read into in this kind of a work... And beyond just what we read into it, it's what's there on its face to be read. The way that Rainsford is so easily dismissive of the feelings of the Jaguar. You know, if we want to continue with our extended metaphor of, you know, the the haves versus the have-nots in a capitalist society, you know, Rainsford is, is evoking what it means to be... One of the haves who cares how the have nots (laughs) feel, and you know, Whitney astutely observes that perhaps the have nots care how they feel as the story progresses. And Rainsford very quickly, uh, spoiler alert for an almost 100 year old story with literally dozens of television and film adaptations, as Rainsford progresses throughout the story and eventually becomes one of the have nots, one of the huntees, as he puts it himself. Uh, he is better able to come to an understanding of what exactly it means to be on the other side of this particularly unfortunate dichotomy. Now, if you wanted to make this less about, let's say, capitalism and more about just haves and have-nots in general, then you could also do that fa- pr- fairly easily. Because once Rainsford falls off of the ship, because that's what happens, he falls off of the ship that they're on to the a- going towards the Amazon, he finds himself on this island. And on the island, he makes his way up to, like, a castle. And in that castle, he finds a Dracula. No, just kidding. It's not a Dracula. It might as well be a Dracula. But what it is, is it's a man named General Zaroff, who is uh, vaguely Eastern European. They say he's a cassock. Uh, I think I looked it up. I think that's sort of Ukrainian, Russian. It's kind of a... In that region, uh, I, I I I have a poor feeling for... The geopolitics of the region and (laughs) and exactly how that person might identify today, but uh, I do believe that he makes mention of the Crimea at some point when he's you know detailing his life story. So it's somewhere in that region. Originally, I had assumed that it was somewhere a little bit more closer to like in uh, Kazakhstan or uh, uh, or or Turkey or uh, somewhere in there, and I don't think that's entirely incorrect. I think there's something to that, but you know, unfortunately, that's this is just not my wheelhouse of expertise. So you know what? Let's just let's just move away from that. This isn't the productive area of discussion. And in any case, Mr. Rainsford finds himself face to face with uh, General Zaroff, who is a. Uh, guy who lives here on the island with his deaf-mute man uh, manservant Ivan, who is some giant, brutish man. Uh, you know, it's very, very Victor Frankenstein, you know. It <laughs> and Ivan himself doesn't have a huge role in the story. Uh, he's kind of there as the enforcer, I guess, to, you know, make sure that uh, Zarath is allowed to continue having his fun. And his fun is so glaringly obvious to the reader. And to be fair, this is an over... Like I keep saying, this is almost a 100-year-old story at this point, so it's not like... It would be difficult to go into this story and not know what it's about. I mean, the way I sell it to people, or the way that I described it when I told somebody who was asking me what I was reading, was I'm reading The Most Dangerous Game, and to my great surprise, they were like, oh, what is that? And I said, hunting man for sport. (laughs) Like, that's that's the main thing that people know about this story. So it'd be very surprising if you went into the story and you didn't know what it was about, at least from my perspective. I, I think it would be very strange if you if you did that, especially as an adult. I think even middle school teachers are going to, you know, introduce the concept of this story to their students as hunting man for sport, just to sort of whet their appetites. You know, this is a cool story. You're going to get to see it. You're going to get to read something cool. It's very violent or whatever, which it really isn't and i was a little bit surprised by it because i did read some like reader reviews like the amateur kinds like on goodreads and stuff like that and some people were like i can't believe they let middle school kids read this this is this is horrible and i and like really <laughs> have you seen television like th- th- this is so vanilla compared to what your children are watching on on television and in film i mean The Avengers and Marvel Comics films, just in general, are way more uh, uh, disgustingly violent than this. And, you know, you could argue that that's more cartoon violence, but that's neither here nor there. What I did want to get to, though, was how funny it is that Rainsford is so very slow on the uptick as Zaroff is, like, twisting, twirling his mustache this entire time, listening to opera and, like, doing Heil Hitler's, you know Hitler doesn't exist in yet, but he's so incredibly clearly a villain, right down to having his own Frankenstein, that it's just it's it's cartoonish. <laughs> but and, and and even the extent to and I'm not going to go through the whole dialogue because it is it is a solid chunk <laughs> of the story being told, where General Rosaroff is clearly ramping up to telling Rainsford what his whole. Thing is here on this island and Rainsford just doesn't get it until the very last second so I'm only going to give you the tail end of that and just imagine that there was like another 20 minutes okay that's an exaggeration but that there was another that this is only the tip of what is a long conversation that finally leads to explaining that he hunts men for sport so we're going to go to a quote now uh to hear that I needed a new animal, I found one. So I bought this island, built this house, and here I do my hunting. The island is perfect for my purposes. There are jungles with a maze of traits in them, hills, swamps, but the animal, generals are off. Oh, said the general, it supplies me with the most exciting hunting in the world. No other hunting compares with it for an instant every day i hunt and i never grow bored now for i have a quarry with which i can match my wits i wanted the ideal animal to hunt explained the general so i said what are the attributes of an ideal quarry and the answer of course was it must have courage cunning and above all it must be able to reason but no animal can reason, objected Rainsford. My dear fellow, said the general, there is one that can. But you can't mean, gasped Rainsford, and why not? I can't believe you are serious, General Zaroff. This is a grisly joke. Why should I not be serious? I am speaking of hunting. Hunting? Great guns, General Zaroff." Would you speak of his murder? The general laughed with entire good nature. He regarded Rainsford quizzically. I refuse to believe that so modern and civilized a young man as you seem to be harbors romantic ideas about the value of human life. Surely your experiences in the war did not make me condone cold-blooded murder, finished Rainsford stiffly. Laughter shook the general. How extraordinarily droll you are, he said. One does not expect nowadays to find a young man of the educated class, even in America, with such a naive and, if I may say so, mid-Victorian point of view. It's like finding a snuffbox in a limousine. Well, doubtless you had the Puritan ancestors. So many Americans appear to have had. I'll wager you'll forget your notions when you go hunting with me. You have a genuine new thrill in store for you, Mr. Rainsford. I probably should have given it a little bit more of a mid-Atlantic feel for Mr. Rainsford, now that I'm looking back on it. It's that great guns, General Zaroff, which you speak of his murder. That's, That's such a great, like... Great cons, generals are off what do you speak of is murder <laughs> just it's so it's so silly but i guess it's the common parlance of the time in a few years uh, people will be talking about how i sound so silly so that's that's fine they probably say that now I, yeah yeah uh, yeah and i want to say i, I want to say that the ramp up to the reveal is filled with tension and that you know it's all really masterfully done And I think it might be. I I really do think it might be. It's just, it's hard to divorce yourself from already knowing what the, I guess you could say the twist is, right? And I I don't know if this was necessarily meant to have a twist in it, like, oh my God, and now he's hunting men. What? But I do know that knowing (laughs) what's going to happen and what the entire premise of the story is, makes the ramp up to the reveal feel really really tedious and you know it's it's one of those things where you just want to slap rainsford upside the head a little bit and it takes a really long time there I don't know if zaroff is just messing with him or not because it's my understanding just from the way that the story is written that zaroff is meaning to hunt rainsford uh, from the from the beginning and yet zaroff speaks for a good while about how Rainsford will hunt with him, and it's not until Rainsford is so self-righteously refusing to uh, join Zaroth on this hunt that Zaroth is like, okay, well, I'll just hunt you. <laughs> now you have no choice, because if you... Uh, oh, by the way, the ultimatum, I guess, is that if he refuses to be hunted, then uh, he'll just give him over to Ivan, his big deaf-mute manservant. Uh, to do with as he pleases. And I guess that's torture. You know, I guess if I were in this situation, I would choose to be hunted as well. And the actual hunting is a little bit of an anticlimax, in my opinion. I think that it's a little silly and contrived. And yeah, okay, I get that Zarath is like a really good hunter and he, he wants to play with his food, so to speak, as he's hunting rainsford and rainsford you know repeatedly is more or less caught by the general but the general doesn't want to like end it quite so quickly because he could have he could have ended it really quickly really easily at least two or three times and when he doesn't you know, for, from the reader's perspective, and maybe, again, this is this is kind of with a modern lens, because I think at the time, it would have been more about the thrill in the 1920s to, like, read this. It would have been a little bit more pulpy, a little bit more, you, you know, this, this is almost like the comic books of the time. You know, you're not going into it for the realism, for the stark realism or anything like that. So, you know, if I were to view it through that lens, then I could see it a little bit more. But on the other hand, you could also count on... You could also chalk up Zaroff's, uh, I suppose, arrogance as a tragic character flaw that ultimately brings about his downfall. There's there's a lot there that, that you could... There's a lot of different ways that you can interpret it. But it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really grab me the way that I thought it would, really. So what is it exactly about this story that I liked so much? It's, it's kind of hard to tell because I feel like everything that I've said has been complaining about it. But I, I think there's a sort of... There's almost a poetic lull to the story. There, there's like, a, it has a sort of rhythm that, you know, even if you, it, it, like a song that uh, that has words that you don't really care for, but you like the music. It, that's kind of what the story is for me. It's very, it's very strange. There's a sort of comfort in the familiarity of a story that's been told and retold and retold and retold. Your favorite television show probably has an episode that is, you know, a parody of this short story and i I just recently saw while i was researching this short story that liam hemsworth is going to come out with a movie based on this story as well so you also have the Ice tea version which is surviving the game i don't remember what the liam hemsworth is going to be called uh but you know and and those aren't far from the only hunting men for sport movies so There is a certain familiarity, maybe, that that is really comforting, especially in these trying times, to be able to, you know, just kind of go through the motions. And, you know, as much as I complained about it, there is a kind of bemusement that I get out of of watching Rainsford just fail to grasp the central concept and the imminent danger that he is in uh, while listening to this really creepy villainous man and of course, the I, I've I've gone so hard on the you know social commentary as as it corresponds to the allegory of hunting men for sport. But there's also the more on its face, this the more surface level interpretation, which is that you know the way that we casually treat the hunting of animals. That when Rainsford is hunted, he becomes the animal. And so you know, whereas in the allegorical interpretation, you could see it as. Uh, you know, now he is the have-nots. He is the poor person in the capitalist society, and he's realizing it that 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 you know, poor people, or or the underclass have it really, really bad, and that you know, he, maybe he should be a little bit more empathetic to their plight, and that sort of thing. So that there is that interpretation, but on a more surface level, Rainsford now is the the is the wary animal. Uh, how how does he put it? He he calls himself the beast at bay. And so, as much as he would like to be a civilized person, and so there, right now in this situation, he is the beast at bay. And so now it's kill or be killed. And so there's also that element of like you know, uh, the fragility of human society, of human civilization. You know, especially as Zaroff is portrayed consistently throughout, through all of the mustache twirling and wine drinking and opera listening. <laughs> he doesn't actually listen to opera, I don't think over the course of this story, but you know, just thinking of things that are coded language for this person is a, vi- is a villain. Uh, but through all of that uh, signaling, he is portrayed as an exceedingly civilized person. you know he he he's definitely uh, of, <laughs> of a kind with Jack Donaghy. you know you go into his into his uh, into his dining hall in, in the evening and he's wearing a tuxedo. you ask him what the occasion is. And he asks you, what am I a farmer? So, you know, he's very, very of the high classes or high society or high civilization or whatever you want to call it. And so there is that commentary of the fragility of human civilization and, you know, that there is a beast lurking within every man and how little it takes to bring it out. But there's also just the casual disdain that we have for animals just in general. And I, I, I didn't do any research on Richard Connell himself. so I don't know if he was an animal rights activist or anything like that, but it is the most surface level and the easiest interpretation and that doesn't that's not to di- disparage it at all. But the most surface level interpretation is that you know we should treat animals you know like they have feelings <laughs> because you know as uh, Whitney so astutely points out at the beginning, there is an emotion that most animals seem to display and that is fear. And when Rainsford, you know, so casually remarks that who cares what a what a jaguar feels and Whitney says, well, the jaguar probably cares how it feels. That's that that could be seen as the thesis of the story. And, you know, you can extrapolate that to the allegory of, you know, capitalist society or just the general uh, haves and have nots. And I think that it works equally well and, if anything, maybe even better in some senses that way. But on a real surface level, I actually do think, you know, and I'm, I'm the kind of person who is all for treating animals with respect. And I don't want deforestation and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't want to destroy habitats. And I'm all for repopulating wildlife. All of those kinds of things. So, on a certain level, I very much feel strongly that that's a good message, so again, I don't, I don't mean to kind of casually dismiss that aspect of this story, you know, cause even, at, even at the very like front end, I, I think it's still a good message and, and it's a timeless one. If anything, it's just going to become more and more relevant as we destroy more and more of the planet. Although, you know, we see now how little it takes to just have a little bit of cleaner air and cleaner water. Sure. So I guess all that remains is the rating review, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm going to give this one a good solid four stars. None of this point crap that I've been doing a lot lately. I'm aware that on Game of Thrones, you know, I gave that one like a 4.8, and that's kind of cheating the the purpose of a five-star system. But, you know, this is a pretty solid four stars, I think. And, you know, I I take away that one star because maybe it's a little bit unfair to take away that one star, but it's what I'm going to stick with. Because that one star is being taken away because I do feel like the story is a little bit too obvious. It's just a little, you know, Rainsford is just the slightest bit too naive. And at the ending is a little too easy and abrupt. Uh, you know, there there's a lot of little things that kind of add up to take away one whole star. There's just, and, and some of it is probably just a product of its time and that's fine. Oh, i uh, <laughs> speaking a product of its time. Oh boy, open up the window. It's getting all racial up in this piece. I forgot to mention, of course, that there is, you know, the casual sort of racism that uh, I think Drew was expecting to uh, find on the Call of Cthulhu episode. Of course, the Call of Cthulhu episode is way more racist than, uh, than uh, you probably were thinking it was. I think this... Short story has the level of racism that you would probably expect from something of this time, where they just casually mention that you know blacks and brown people are are just kind of inferior in general and have the ability to reason, but they are humans technically, and you know it's that kind of thing. Uh, I'm not I'm not caring about that as far as uh, counting for my rating goes. I just thought I'd mention that uh, because for once the racism in the story is kind of an afterthought, really. It's I, it's the kind of thing where. Yeah, it's up the time, but it's not. It's not intrusive, and you know, there I, I don't have to make a big stink about it. Except to say that you know, if you really, really uh, hate anything that has anything racist in it at all, then I guess by that very small, you know, almost throwaway lines of you know mentioning that black and brown people are inferior in some way, the most dangerous game is, has that in it. Uh, and I would recommend this to pretty much anybody. Uh, I think that the short length of it you you can read this in under an hour it's not very long at all and again i read a pdf online so this is public domain you can find it on youtube you can just listen to it as an audiobook on youtube for free you can find a podcast that tells you old-timey stories and they'll read it to you for free there's all kinds of resources for you to uh listen to or read this story if you so choose And that is The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. If you have ever hunted man for sport, you should turn yourself into the FBI. But alternatively, if you want to talk about something else, you can email us at 100morepod at gmail.com. For the time being, we will not be posting a whole lot to Instagram or Twitter. That is at 100morepod.com. But we're kind of taking a step back from the social media aspect of this particular enterprise while we try to focus on providing more content throughout the week. Uh, But you can still rate and review us on iTunes. Please give us five stars to help reach more ears and increase our visibility. And you can still check out the 100 more list on Goodreads. Search 100 more pod. Next time on the program, we will be discussing The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. So this is a full-length novel. We're going to dip our toes back into the full-length novels and see how that works out, and if we can keep that up during this pandemic failing that. Of course, we have some other short stories that we might have lined up for in the future. But as of now, the idea is to go forward with The Plot Against America. So until next time, I have been Gio, and we'll be back next time with The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. Wow, the library really is a great resource.